Before we get into episode 39 and my discussion with Craig, I've just got a few announcements. Today marks our first episode in July, which means it's donation time. Here at Outer Rim Reads, I donate $1 for every patron we have over at patreon.com slash outerrimreads to charity at the beginning of each month. By the time I'm recording the intro, we've got 12 patrons, which means I'm donating $12 to CARE. CARE is an international humanitarian organization that delivers emergency relief across the globe, working for social justice and equal rights and opportunities. Currently, there are a lot of countries still fighting against the COVID pandemic, and CARE has been doing important work in 69 different countries, providing clean water, hygiene kits, working with local governments to aid in fast and fair vaccine delivery, and more. If you want to learn more about CARE and the crucial work that they do, you can go to care.org. I also want to thank all of you for supporting the show through listens, downloads, sharing by word of mouth, and much more. I really couldn't do any of this without such a fantastic community, so really, thank you so much. And speaking of thanks, I have to thank our wonderful patrons over at patreon.com slash outerrimreads for making this show possible. Your generosity and support each month keeps me going and motivated, and I really couldn't be thankful enough that you all have made it a priority to donate some of your hard-earned money towards this podcast. I want to give a special thanks to our patron Jared, who upgraded his pledge, as well as a huge shout-out, as always, to our patron at the Lothal tier, Simon. If you'd like to join our community of patrons, please do. You can get access to our patron Discord server and monthly Star Wars trivia nights, episode bloopers and bonus audio, exclusive stickers and t-shirts, and so much more. So for as little as $3 a month, you can join the family at patreon.com slash outerrimreads. Now let's get into episode 39 of Outer Rim Reads and my discussion with Greg Cass about Obi-Wan Kenobi. Hello there, listeners, and welcome to episode 39 of Outer Rim Reads, a podcast that journeys chapter by chapter through Star Wars novels across the canon. My name is Andrew Geha, and I'm your host along this journey. In today's episode, three out of four in our interseason break, we will be discussing the character and development of Obi-Wan Kenobi from Master and Apprentice through A New Hope, and I'm honored to be joined by Greg Cass, also known on Twitter as IonCanon. Greg, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm so good. I very rarely get second invitations to podcasts, so <laughs> that's a personal achievement. And to be here to talk about Kenobi, I could not be more excited. So thanks for having me back. Of course. I'm glad to have you back. I, I said to a few people that the episode you came on for Master and Apprentice was probably one of the one of my favorites to have recorded in, in season two. Just the discussion points that you brought and the insights and all that were was fantastic. And I'm especially excited for, for this episode today because you know, like you said, uh, or I guess, like I said, you know, we will be talking about Obi-Wan Kenobi. And the reason I've I brought you on is because you're kind of 
renowned <laughs> for your super fandom of the character of Obi-Wan Kenobi. So I think there's really no one better to have on to talk about this character. Um, so really, you're the right man for the job. <laughs> well, thank you for that. I'm actually writing down, okay, I'm renowned. So next time my <laughs> wife is like, what are these charges for another Obi-Wan figure? I'll just say, it's my renown, honey. Uh, right. I, I have to maintain appearances. So Right. Uh, the, the... <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm very excited. I, I love... Kenobi so much and um uh, I think what brought me that renowned is I have a uh, set of shelves that I call my Kenobi shelves that are just um, every version of Obi-Wan Kenobi I can ever find. I, I take and cram onto these uh, what has become a, a full bookshelf now at this point. So uh, <laughs> it's a lot of fun and it's a great way to focus your collection if, if other collectors are looking to to learn how to make those choices because we can't all buy it all these days. Yeah, you, you can only <laughs> wish, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know, this is, this is an audio podcast, unfortunately. Unfortunately, I guess, but unfortunately, because the listeners will not be able to see the shelf that you've got. But could you give kind of like a brief description? I mean, when you say kind of like any any kind of form or, or kind of piece of Obi-Wan Kenobi collection that, that you can get your hands on, could you kind of give a, a description of what you've got on those shelves just so they can kind of get a get a mental picture? Absolutely. So before I was a, a parent and had uh, that thing they called disposable income, um, uh, what I would do <laughs> as often as I could is I would uh, do an eBay search for Kenobi and just sort it by cheapest first and just buy, you know, five or 10 <laughs> items on an evening when I had a beer or two. Um, and so I slowly collected kind of everything under the sun. So certainly a lot of action figures, uh, the the True. very, uh, he's a popular character for Hasbro to return to in all his various forms. Um, so I have a lot of those loose and carded. And then uh, Happy Meal toys and miniatures really? from uh, games I never played and trading cards and Angry Birds and <laughs> Sam the Eagle from the Muppets dressed as Obi-Wan Kenobi um, and uh, Funko Pops and erasers and on and on and on. Pez dispensers, of course. <laughs> Um, it's fantastic. Yeah, and it's 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 a lot of fun to to focus in that way because um, that way I don't buy everything under the sun and just <laughs> it, it ends up being a cool visual to just mix and match them and have them all together. And I will certainly when when the episode drops, I'll I'll throw some pictures up uh, freshly on my uh, Twitter account so everybody can see. That'd be fantastic. It, it it makes me just like smile just like hearing you describe this and just how just how involved you are with with this character and uh, really amassing the collection. It's it's very impressive that there is, I guess, would you call it a shrine to, to Obi-Wan? <laughs> uh, yeah, a good friend gave me a, a portrait of him that looks like religious iconography, and I think that's when I crossed the line. Right. Right? It's like, oh, now Obi-Wan it does is Jesus. look like I worship here. Exactly. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, an obsession that's growing unhealthy. I'm personally concerned with the Kenobi show coming up, which I'm beyond exactly. excited for. I'm going to run out of room really fast because I'm sure the, the merchandise will all be focused on him, I, I at least initially, before they reveal whoever else is in the show. So it's it's going to oh, get exactly. bad uh, very It's going to get great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> From a certain uh, point of view. My poor children who won't go to college, but they'll say, well, my dad really liked Obi-Wan Kenobi, so we couldn't go. You keep that consistency. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a sacrifice that had to be made. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They'll understand eventually. <laughs> But for, for any listeners who hadn't heard uh, our previous episode when, when you came on for Master and Apprentice, could you talk a little bit about kind of uh, 
a brief overview of your Star Wars fandom and then specifically why you kind of came to love this character of Obi-Wan Kenobi, kind of what about him and his portrayal or his character kind of drew you to him to kind of inspire what has now been, uh, you know, you, you call it an unhealthy obsession. I call it a very healthy obsession, <laughs> <laughs> but, but how did that come to be? Yeah, it's, it's a question I get a lot and it is, it is fun to answer. So, so basically for my uh, fandom, the briefest version is I'm from this weird generation of fans that came of age after the OT, but before the PT. So I was uh, born in 83, so no memory of seeing any of the original trilogy in theaters, and they existed on home video. And I think I was uh, somewhere around fourth or fifth grade and was at a sleepover at a friend's house, and her family had recorded Empire and Jedi off of TV. Um, and so I saw those two first. It was actually like two or three years before I even saw A New Hope, which makes the Kenobi thing even more strange in many ways. But it just struck me at the right age. I was super excited about all the things I saw in this world. It just blew my mind and I uh, kind of grew in fandom. And the fun thing about being in my generation of fandom, I'm not going to say we're the best ones because there, there's no best. <laughs> but the fun thing about our generation of fandom is that it started to feel like because we liked Star Wars, it was all coming back. So it's like, oh, you really like Star Wars? We'll start making action figures again. You like Star Wars? We'll put out the movies in movie theaters again as the special edition. Um, so by the time I got to the prequels, you know, I'm, I'm not a kid anymore. I'm, I'm more of a teenager, certainly. Uh, I guess 16 would be about when it was. Um, and that's when my passion for Obi-Wan Kenobi just like took off because I think Ewan was the heart of those movies. Um, I, I think he's the one who seems like he's having the most fun in all of them um, and really throwing himself into the role. Um, the the funny one, part of it is, uh, so right after Phantom Menace came out, um, you know, very nerdy 16-year-old. I had a very nerdy 15-year-old <laughs> friend. And he and I decided to recreate on video the uh, duel from the end of oh, Phantom Menace. Wow. Um, and I, it's so embarrassing. I can't even put it online. It's <laughs> its too much. But I got assigned the role of Obi-Wan Kenobi. We costumed up. We went out at after dark so that the lightsabers glowed. Wow. And we did our, you know, it, we were like the kids who recreated Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, in the 80s. Uh, <laughs> so we did our best home video version of the duel. Um, and that was kind of the moment. And I just happened to get assigned obi-wan and then that started uh kind of some extra affinity for the character um once i became an adult i went into teaching and i think that just made me come to love old ben a lot as well sure. and connect a lot with who obi-wan became and and really from there i've just grown in my appreciation and love for the character i think you know alec guinness gave that first movie a lot of legitimacy and Ever since then, all the material that has involved Obi-Wan has, has always kind of done that. It's it's really elevated whatever book or film or show it, it was on. So um, so that's only grown. Um, and then the, the one last piece I'll say to that is um, I think the moment that really sealed the deal for me is there was a, a Topps trading card set um, called Galaxy, which mm. these were the cards that were original art 
based on Star Wars. And I think it's Galaxy 4, but I'm not positive on that. Um, there was a, a trading card in it, and um, I just drew it in a pack. And that the, the little subset was the Joseph Campbell hero cycle in Star Wars. And the card was of the moment old Ben died. Mm. And it reframed kind of the whole Star Wars saga around that moment, which, you know, three or four sentences but it did an amazing <laughs> job of it um and you know I, i'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit later when we talk about a new hope but it really made me kind of understand that this is anakin's story it's definitely the skywalker saga but the role obi-wan played is so important that none of it would have happened without him so um so that's when the the collection is like well i gotta get all the trading cards and i gotta get <laughs> on and on and on to all the things we discussed that's absolutely fantastic, and and I hope you know that um, I'm not going to let you off the hook with that uh, recording of the the duel. Uh, <laughs> it's going to have to surface, uh, you know, because I, I see a lot of people kind of reenact the dialogue between you know Anakin and Obi Wan and Mustafar and kind of that mm. that whole scene. I've never heard of a reenactment <laughs> of Duel of the Fates. Uh, <laughs> so and, and just to tease it a little more, it was edited in camera, right? So like we we didn't have iPhones and all the like easy yeah. editing software. It was okay. Get that shot. Stop the camera. Move it over here. And all that's that. awesome. So it was ridiculous. <laughs> uh, I, I hope that one day, one day it'll <laughs> it'll kind of break into the light. Uh, that sounds too great to not to. Uh, but I'm also excited to to hear your thoughts on uh, kind of old Ben in A New Hope. What you were saying there was getting me excited to to really hear hear you talk about this character that you love so much and that I think for, for me too, he's one of my favorite characters. I think, um, I think he's easily top three. I think that Thrawn still takes the top spot mm. for me, but I think Obi-Wan could be, could be close behind in number two. But in that vein, how about we hop into kind of talking about this character? So I guess with this podcast, the last that I've really spoken about him was him in the context of Master and Apprentice. And kind of the the format of this episode, just for the listeners uh, who, are, who are listening, is we're going to move kind of from each kind of major point of content in canon. So from Master and Apprentice to The Phantom Menace to Attack of the Clones, like the Clone Wars show, Revenge of the Sith, and so on. So let's start with... Obi-Wan from Master and Apprentice through the end of Phantom Menace. So, mm. you know, when they've cremated Qui-Gon and he takes on Anakin as his new apprentice. So so from from his character from Master and Apprentice through the Phantom Menace, I don't know if I can think of really many significant changes in his character. I know from Master and Apprentice, he and Qui-Gon were on you know, on the odd foot for most of the book, you know, there, there was a lot of emotion in Obi-Wan. He was very kind of devout to the council and the order. And so that clashed with Qui-Gon's philosophy of kind of being more lenient when it comes to the, to the Jedi code and, and the council. I think for me, one of the most notable moments in the Phantom Menace for him, you know, and I know we saw a glimpse of this in Master and Apprentice when he was kind of blowing off steam in the Padawan dojo after Qui-Gon, mm. Um, and after he found out that Qui-Gon had been given an offer to join the council and he was, you know, he, there's a lot of anger and frustration in him and he was kind of blowing off steam. And in, in The Phantom Menace, we see a moment, you know, right after Maul kills Qui-Gon, how 
we see visibly, and I think you and McGregor did a phenomenal job of portraying this, just the the emotion and, and the anger and maybe even like the hatred that kind of built up in Obi-Wan that governed his actions going into the ensuing duel with Maul. And mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of notable how he made a lot of progress in his relationship with Qui-Gon, but as a Jedi, as a, as a person, there was still a lot of conflict there and, st- and, and emotion prone to kind of boil over but in in kind of in your takes kind of that transition did you see any kind of notable changes in obi-wan and what did you think of kind of his development and portrayal in the phantom menace especially coming from what we covered and read about in master and apprentice it's a a really interesting time because it's a blank in obi-wan right uh so you know i said before we started recording I, I listened to the full Master and Apprentice season. I really appreciate it. And one of the things that stood out to me about Obi-Wan in the first half of that book is just how young he was, right? Yep. He was really a teenager. And, um, you know, I I teach college, so I don't have quite that young, but I'm at the tail end of that. And you understand that there's just these moments where your emotion takes over, right? And a student yeah. will say something or send an email they regret. And I think we very much saw that with Obi-Wan, um, this sense that he knows better than Qui-Gon. And then in the second half of the book, that really comes to the front, which is, like you said, he's he's a, a lawful good, I guess yeah, would right. be, right? So <laughs> so he has to follow the council there, and he, you know, essentially rats out Qui-Gon and, and ends up um, taking part in the serum. I'm rehashing Master and Apprentice, but I think your listeners heard that, I'm sure. Um, so all of that is is like he doesn't have the sense to question his own emotions and his own feelings. Um, and I think that really strikes me as how I felt at at those ages, right? You look back at yourself as 14, 15, 16, and you're full of regrets. The mean things you said to other kids at school, the the things you wish you hadn't said to your parents, the (laughs) the romantic gestures you made that were really ill-conceived, whatever it was. (laughs) Um, So I do think that um, for for that Obi-Wan, he's so young and and just a little out of control in a way that's not dangerous, but just typical teenagerhood. Um, so jumping from there to Phantom Menace, I think for me, um, you know, you were describing that moment at the end of the movie and I can just see the the gif of the the uh, duel in my head of, of him uh, really coming undone. And if if there's a Star Wars ring theory fan in your audience, you know, we should compare that, I believe, to Return of the Jedi is the, the comparison. And so when oh, Luke kind of loses control with Vader... I think that would be the echo here, right? That Obi-Wan wow. has kind of lost control and might be pulling a little towards the dark side as he gets so aggressive. Um, that moment where he's still behind the the shield and, and is waiting. Um, and I think if I have my Phantom Menace right, which it's been a long day, <laughs> so who knows? But um, I believe whereas... Darth Maul paced when he was locked in, kind of like a caged lion. I think he's more still when he's facing Obi-Wan. And Obi-Wan ignites first, right? Like, they both sense it coming. And he flashes his saber on first. And and just like you were saying, um, he's kind of lost his control in a a way due to grief for Qui-Gon. And I think Master and Apprentice gives that moment a, a real resonance because we understand they've been together a really long time. They've built something together by both sacrificing opportunities or or you know their own emotions and so when they really uh when he is losing Qui-Gon I I think it it becomes a very human moment 
from um, somebody who isn't always human in the first part of that movie, right? Mm. Is, uh, you know, he is sidelined for a, a, the Tatooine portion, right? He just kind of sits yeah. on the ship. Um, but he doesn't seem to be upset about that or display any emotion. So then when we get to the end, um, one other thing, um, and I swear I'll let you talk too, uh, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, I would also compare that to earlier in the film when Qui-Gon's going to go back to get Anakin, Obi-Wan says... Why do I sense we've picked up another pathetic life form? Yeah, that's that's cruel. That's dark. Um, yeah, it, yep. he's a, implying Jar Jar is cruel and pathetic. At least maybe some of the the royal court. And so to see that guy then do all he can for a pathetic life form who lays dying his master, right? Um, I think that shows that there is growth even across the the film. Yeah, go for it. Oh, I mean, I, I like how you brought that up because I, I had forgotten about that moment. But I think multiple times, maybe even across season two, that that moment where he kind of calls Anakin and kind of co, you know, pathetic life form. And I've forgotten about that. And that kind of ties into I remember in Master and Apprentice, there was especially at the beginning portion of the book, when he was learning more about Pijal and kind of their ancient traditions. And he, he kind of thought of them as being more or less like maybe backwards compared to a more uh, modern planet like Coruscant. And Qui-Gon comments a couple of times that, you know, Obi-Wan is a bit sheltered and how the Jedi, you know, the younglings and Padawans often are sheltered because they're brought up on, on Coruscant and all that. And I think that kind of resonates in that line when he calls, you know, Anakin and Jar Jar, you know, like a pathetic life form. It's kind of this, from this point of, I don't know if it's, if it's arrogance as still a young Padawan, if it's just, you know, part of his upbringing coming from Coruscant, but I kind of see that, that thread in there. And then to see as, as you kind of wrap that up where he does grow out of that, even in the course of, uh, still the Phantom Menace and how he, you know, he gives it all for, for this, for these pathetic life forms, <laughs> yeah. as he called, um, it, it is a big step, but I think that that kind of little through line was interesting to think about and to see how, you know, some of these misconceptions and, and privileges and points of pride still carried through to Phantom Menace, but then how in Qui-Gon's death, in, in those last moments of, in those last very human moments, like you're, uh, like you'd mentioned, kind of he, he's able to grow out of these things that have been holding him back as a character, I think. Yeah, really, really excellent point there. I think I like, I, I like a lot of what you said, but I, the best idea there to me is this idea, again, that if you're not on Coruscant, you matter less, right? Because right. you're right. That was that was in the, the novel, and I think it's implied there. So we have the Gungans who are from a civilized planet but are the primitive species kind of cast out on Naboo. And then we go to Tatooine and his total disdain for everything there – ironic considering where he ends up exactly. um, but but it is uh, a way in which that kind of echoes uh, through there and uh i'm just gonna say you might have some things to think about that uh next season and and leave it at that as you <laughs> explore the high republic era because you're a very i think you're mostly you've already dived in where i'm still held back i remember you referenced a little bit of the high republic the last time you're on uh so i am very very excited to get into get into that um and to see some maybe connections but as we move from the phantom menace through attack of the clones we really see obi-wan now with anakin as his as padawan i think obi-wan still is only a jedi knight uh at this at this moment i don't think he's been granted the rank of master um but we see kind of him settling into that master apprentice role with with Anakin. And I guess 
one of my questions for you is, do you think when you watch Attack of the Clones and you see Obi-Wan, his character and his progression with Anakin, because at the end of The Phantom Menace, when he took Anakin on as Apprentice, as as it's expanded on in the epilogue of Master and Apprentice, it's mostly or really solely out of his obligation to fulfill Qui-Gon's kind of dying wish. The only reason that he's doing this is to kind of not let his master down to kind of keep his promise to Qui-Gon. And so watching Attack of the Clones and seeing Obi-Wan kind of play out on screen and his dynamic and conversations with Anakin, do you think the foundation of that relationship was still based on him fulfilling that promise? Or do you think that was kind of the beginnings of this kind of breaking out of that kind of bind that he placed on himself and that relationship and into kind of a genuine brotherhood with Anakin. What, what did you think about his approach there and and if he had really shed kind of the sole purpose that he had initially placed on it to fulfill Qui-Gon's wish? So I think there's something to the fact, and I'd already forgotten about that epilogue, which is such a brilliant <laughs> part of that novel. And it's just this like perfect little dessert after a delicious meal um, yeah. <laughs> that Claudia Gray gives us. So as we think about him becoming Anakin's master. Um, We get a moment in the middle of Phantom Menace where Qui-Gon's just like, he's ready for the trials. Like, he's fine. Go on. Um, And, you know, Qui-Gon, I think, has a line of dialogue. I am grateful that you think I'm ready. Like, I I am. Um, But I think we don't appreciate enough the fact that it's the odd duel with Darth Maul that becomes an alternative to the trials And then he's immediately a teacher. And it is that I was duty bound by the code. I'm duty bound to Qui-Gon now. He transferred that that kind of sentiment. Um, And then the other thing, and maybe I'll throw it back to you with this thought, is um, I was really struck in, I think this is a deep dive now, I think it's the bonus features for season one of Mandalorian where Dave Filoni explains the duel of the fates and how he sees the Qui-Gon Obi-Wan as two poles for Anakin and that the fate of the Jedi and the Republican Anakin and yeah, and Anakin all hangs on that. Um, And in Filoni's, uh, you know, formulation and, I want to be clear to everybody on the internet. I'm not questioning Dave Filoni, right? I know I'll be strung up somewhere uh, for doing so <laughs> with a cowboy hat stabbed through my heart somehow. Uh, I love what Dave Filoni does, and I, I really loved him explaining this. But he explained that it was the fact that Anakin ends up with Obi-Wan that's the problem because Obi-Wan mm. is too much of the dogmatic, let's follow the teachings, let's not follow the living force. Um And so having that piece, as well as how quickly he became a master, I think it's hard not to see his choice to become that master as deeply um, significant and, and, uh, you know, a moment uh, that shapes a lot of the saga. Um, So I want to throw it back to you. Did you see that, Dave Filoni thing? How did you feel about that? I did. Um, I I did see it, and I think think it's a really great uh, set of takes from Filoni. Uh, I... I don't want to blame Obi-Wan as being like the the cause of everything that went wrong because I think Filoni was saying that Qui-Gon was would have been more of like a father figure to Anakin whereas Obi-Wan was more of a brother to him and that the dynamic of that relationship wasn't necessarily what Anakin needed in that moment and also Obi-Wan's kind of more dogmatic approach to the to the uh, order and the code like you were mentioning I don't know if I want to blame Obi-Wan 
for that because he very much did not ask for the circumstances that that befell him with Qui-Gon's death and mm. you know taking on Anakin as an, as an apprentice but there was a lot of courage in kind of stepping into the unknown and being willing to take on an apprentice when he himself probably knew that he was not ready to teach like if he's being honest with himself maybe maybe he was I don't know but <laughs> it, it was really because you had mentioned that his duel with Darth Maul kind of fell in lieu of the of the Jedi trials and they kind of deemed him ready to be a knight after that I still need to think on it more because I do think that Qui-Gon would have been better suited as a master to Anakin than Obi-Wan was but I don't want to I think it's unfair to kind of place blame on Obi-Wan just by the nature of who he is in his mm. in the dynamic of that relationship with Anakin. I don't think it's fair to him because they were just so much out of his control and what alternative is there? You know, send Anakin back. Yeah, you know, it's just it wouldn't have made sense. So I appreciated Filoni's takes and I, I do think that the course of events would have drastically been changed had Qui-Gon survived, but I still think that Obi-Wan plays more of a central role in kind of the the formation the progression of the story than a lot of people give credit for i think he gets a lot of maybe uh undue hate for the nature of his <laughs> dynamic with anakin but i think that he did admirably and the circumstances were the odds were against him well and, and what you're saying makes me think maybe the formulation is not one uh, it's not qui-gon or obi-wan but it's Qui-Gon is an exception. He's totally sure. different. And so if it can't be him, it is just going to be the Order, right? And so Obi-Wan is our member of the Order, um, and that's kind of the best they can do. Um, and, you know, something that I think, uh, you know, prequel haters who still exist somehow, they're still <laughs> somehow. sharpening their axes from 20 years ago. Uh, <laughs> but one of the things that they always point out is that they wanted the Jedi to be awesome, and they weren't mm. awesome. And I do understand that emotion um but i think we have to remember that george's goal was to show the jedi as flawed um yeah and that's something that opened up for the high republic authors to say let's see the pure jedi before their flawed uh, nature yeah. took over um so i do think that's right to understand obi-wan as a product of his circumstances and maybe not the best but um still just doing the best he can in those yeah. circumstances. It's really all that he that he could do. Um, yeah. And and you know we see some as far as his relationship and dynamic in the order. You know we saw some really positive strides for his character where he was becoming maybe growing into the role that Qui-Gon purposefully kind of stepped away from mm. where he was becoming, I mean, not, not to say that Qui-Gon was not trusted by the council. He, he was, but maybe Obi-Wan was trusted and relied upon in it in a different way than Qui-Gon was, but we see him really being groomed for how we know he ends up in Revenge of the Sith as part mm. of, as, as part of the council. And we see that according to Dooku, uh, you know, he's highly regarded by the grand master Yoda for his ability with a lightsaber. So we really see, him kind of stepping into the shoes of, I guess, what it, maybe what it means to be a Jedi at that point in time. But what did you think about seeing him kind of go from, as you were saying, in, Fant in The Phantom Menace and Master and Apprentice as this you know, young, kind of emotionally driven Padawan to kind of becoming this kind of stoic, very calm, cool, collected mm. Jedi Knight uh, that we are beginning to see how he kind of ends up as we know him in A New Hope, where he's, uh, you know, old Ben, but kind of yeah. the, the beginnings of that road. Uh, it is a good reminder that it's a full 
decade in universe time between Phantom Menace yep. and Attack of the Clones because obviously the the shift from Jake Lloyd to to Hayden Christensen makes it very obvious for Anakin yep. because we have the continuity of the same actor it's easy to kind of think of this as maybe not the next day but a couple years <laughs> not necessarily that much development and so you know again thinking of somebody going from I think roughly speaking their early 20s to their early 30s I think that that naturally leads to I understand more of the world I maybe have my same beliefs but I'm not gonna be crazy about them I'm gonna you know play a little closer to the vest or or as uh develops um I mean I think the crime between Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones is the mullet right um <laughs> I I love Obi-Wan I'll buy episode two Obi-Wan you're stuff not a mullet guy <laughs> not a mullet guy um I think it just I where did that come from is so bizarre to me but uh you know um and I think it was wise of of Clone Wars the cartoon to kind of establish yeah he gets rid of that right away do away with it yeah as soon as he gets back to Coruscant it's gone um and you know the other thing weighing on my mind is we did have to the best of my knowledge two adult novels in Legends set between the two um there's kind of an immediate the post Phantom Menace book called Rogue Planet. Mm -hmm. um, and there's an immediately before Attack of the Clones book called uh, Before the Storm, as I recall. That's uh, The Approaching Storm. The Approaching Storm. Um, so in those books, we get a little bit more of that teacher student dynamic, both with a very young boy and then with a teenager who's kind of, sure. you know, all the chaos that that uh, brings. So I think in that space you know to understand how much being a teacher makes him mature as well as just the natural process i think is my best understanding of of him now when we get to the start of attack of the clones it's clear he is very much who qui-gon was in master and apprentice in that whatever he's doing is probably for the best interest of his padawan but he's not expressing it well, right? Yeah. These uh, these Jedi who just need to say what they feel. Uh, but the <laughs> fact that uh, Anakin, excuse me, um, is immediately like, he's holding me back, he's afraid of me, um, that implies that the teaching is not going terribly well, right? Mm. Um, that, that it may be teaching him the right lessons, but if you don't explain them right, then they're not going to hit in that same way. Um, and the fact that they then spend the majority of the movie apart, um, yeah. we, we see the speeder chase and then it's a long time till they're, they're together again on Geonosis. I think that also starts to show us eh, they're okay working together. They're kind of butting heads a little in the speeder chase. Um, and then by the end of the movie, there's still, there's, there's a gap there. They're not on the same page mm. at any moment in, in this film, I guess I'm realizing as I talk that that's what yeah. I, that, that's how I guess I would summarize it, you know, from Anakin jumping off the side of the speeder to surprise him um, all the way to I'll take him first. And Anakin yeah. runs in and Obi-Wan's like, no, we got to take him together. Um, you know, I think that shows the relationship is, is a little uh, off kilter, uh, not balanced and not what it should be. That is, and and kind of as you were realizing these points, as you were saying them, so too for me, because I, I had not, you know, when I've watched the movie, I haven't looked at it through the lens of just their partnership mm -hmm. and relationship, like just analyzing it as the movie progresses, because you're right, for, you know, 90% of the movie, they, they're apart, and when they're together, very much like in Master and Apprentice, I mean, even though Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon are together the whole time, pretty much, but... Really, when they're together in Attack of the Clones, it's a lot of bickering and yep. arguing and, you know, from 
uh, <laughs> from the awkward moments when Anakin's trying to hit on Padme and Obi-Wan's like, what do you do? You know, oh, what are you doing? Yeah. And then when Anakin was trying to get them to put the gunship down after Padme fell off. And then, you know, when you referenced, mm. you know, him charging Dooku first, really, I hadn't thought about that until now we're really even when they were together and had these opportunities to work as a cohesive unit, it was very much like kind of the the Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon we got in Master and Apprentice where it's just a lot of, they're just off step. And, you know, like you're saying, maybe showing that their partnership is, it's just not on the right foot at that, at that moment. And, and, and it's interesting because we see the potential either as readers of Master and Apprentice yeah. or as viewers of Attack of the Clones, we see that if they could just click that everything would be a lot smoother and they could get these things done. They, you know, whatever step there is. But, um, and I think some of that is Obi-Wan wanting to be the role model. Mm -hmm. And yet, because he doesn't express it, it doesn't land that way. I'm thinking of the bar scene where they're walking in and Anakin's like, we got to do this, we got to do it. And maybe Ewan's most Alec Guinness moment in that film is when he (laughs) says, like, slow down, stop, think, uh, he went in there to hide, not to to escape. Um, and I think then when he's I'm going to get a drink. Uh, yeah. You know, he's just cool and he's trying to show his Padawan how he should be. Yet he's still like you. You handle this. Like, <laughs> go yeah. ahead. Like, you deal with it. <laughs> so it's not really um, expressed right either. Um, the one moment I might give Obi Wan a little more credit for than Qui Gon did is when Anakin is troubled at the very beginning. Mm. Obi Wan does say. You're having trouble sleeping again. Yeah. Um, you're you're having dreams again of your mother and Anakin's creepy. Like I'd rather dream of Padme. Um, but <laughs> we'll, <laughs> so we'll, we'll set that aside. Uh, so like clearly there's a relationship there, and they have shared some personal stuff. Um, and a, I, something I'm not always clear on is how much has Palpatine started to worm his way into True. that Anakin's mind. Um, by the time we get to Revenge of the Sith, there's a strong relationship there. Yeah. So it must have been seeded by now, um, one would imagine. But um, I think that's a, a little bit of a blank. Could make a great novel, actually. The, yeah. The kind of grooming <laughs> of a, a Sith Lord, I guess. That would be very interesting. Uh, and, I, and I like how you kind of mentioned that, you know, kind of points to Obi-Wan where, you know, he does try to engage Anakin in this kind of conversation to, you know, he sees that, you know, he's he's kind of struggling a bit that that not all is well and he tries to you know to connect over that and I think oftentimes people I don't know I've seen hate go either way with Anakin like not communicating enough or Obi-Wan not trying enough to communicate but I think you know there are moments when he makes these genuine attempts to make that connection to expand on whatever connection they have already formed and you know I do think that's a very uh you know in that moment you know, we're well informed from what we've read from Master and Apprentice, where there was a lack of communication just consistently. And in that, in then in this moment, we see kind of like the growth in Obi Wan as a character. Then you know, trying to make that connection with his Padawan. You know, even if it wasn't consistent or perfect across the movie, uh, that moment was there. Uh, I think that's that's a that's a good point. Well, and when you brought up the scene where they're yelling on the gunship, that's again Obi Wan is really he i think he shows that he totally understands anakin at that moment and he reaches him the way that only the only way that would work in that moment which is to say what would she do if she were here instead of you and yeah and he he said she would do her duty um which i think is right and that's kind of what makes anakin 
um, see sense. And I think to me that also shows Obi-Wan's on to them now. Like there's no like late (laughs) Clone Wars revelation that they're a couple. Like Obi-Wan gets it now and he's just going to turn a blind eye to to let it happen perhaps. (laughs) Yeah. But it it really is that moment that, that kind of brings Anakin back and into his senses more or less until he, you know, loses his control again when they encounter Dooku. But there is that moment where, you know, he's, He's on. There's no way that he cannot be on to them, especially after hearing Anakin's comments when they first arrived at Coruscant. Yep. It's just, uh, it's, just, it's so cringe. But maybe yeah. maybe that's material for another episode. <laughs> let's let's close Attack of the Clones by acknowledging yes. how terrible Obi Wan is in that final duel. Um, uh, so he gets hit in it. the oh. leg and just goes down and lays down for the last you know 20 minutes of the movie i i've never understood it and i think um so i was a bad prequel fan and i read the novel before i went to uh the film which they let used to let you do uh now they release it all at once um and i want to say some listener could probably check me but i want to say in the novelization it's very much that um count dooku pulls down that giant thing sooner so that Mm. obi-wan is trying to hold that up for longer because in the final edited film he gets hit a couple times sure painful no problem but then he's conscious just yep. lying there watching a large portion of it and and even when dooku does knock over the thing it's yoda that saves them yeah and obi-wan watches so uh maybe that's why attack of the clones is always going to be a little lower in my rankings um but it's it's kind of a, a rough time for kenobi it really <laughs> is uh, i think that for me uh, i don't think obi-wan was done enough justice on screen in his duels with dooku in revenge of the sith as well yeah Especially, it's just really ironic, especially because in Attack of the Clones, Dooku prefaces this duel, you know, saying, oh, you know, Master Yoda holds you in such high esteem, you know, with his dueling ability. And then we see him just get absolutely wrecked, which I know Dooku is a masterful duelist, but like you're saying, you know, (laughs) how much Obi-Wan has been through at that moment, he gets like, you know, cut on his arm, leg, and then he's just down for the count, just watching this the whole time. It just doesn't, it never sat well with me and never will. Um, just, just at least put him unconscious like exactly okay right? like make it so he can't i i don't i don't understand it but i will say it took me a few viewings to actually come to that so maybe if, sure. if you're a normal person what do the bad batch call them the regs the regs, the regs. can just watch it once <laughs> and be fine with it and not notice it but yeah i think us diehards it's like yeah, it's a little hard to square why he's just there for so long <laughs> especially as a kenobi stand like like yourself it, it just it, it doesn't sit well <laughs> look, look for my fan edit coming out soon where right. yeah. <laughs> but uh, moving from Attack of the Clones, not yet to Revenge of the Sith, let's talk a little bit about his character in the Clone Wars. And, you know, one of kind of like the major parts of his development in the, in the Clone Wars, like a really important plot line for, for him, is his involvement and relationship with Duchess Satine of Mandalore. And I think it's in that kind of relationship, his dynamic with her that we, I guess, both see a lot of kind of Qui-Gon's approach to the Order in in his kind of approach to Satine, where he admitted to her that he would have literally left the Order had she asked. So we really see that's very starkly contrasted with his kind of uh, very much, much more dogmatic and, and loyal to the Order approach that, you know, we saw in kind of in Master and Apprentice and the Phantom Menace. 
But then also he had kind of the ability to kind of keep his emotions in check and realize that he still had a duty to the order just as she had a duty to her planet. And so, you know, he didn't approach that relationship as, let's say, Anakin did with Padme, where it was maybe not as healthily done, but kind of just looking at that relationship, because that was when I watched The Clone Wars for the first time, I was kind of blindsided by that. I was I was not, you know, very caught off guard at you know, this kind of step for Obi-Wan, but looking at his character just, just from Attack of the Clones, going into that and, and how that had been going on for a while, but we see them both managing their relationship in different ways, but what does that speak to you about his character seeing this relationship with Satine and then ultimately uh, the, the, the tragic end to it where he admits that, you know, he would have left if she had given the word, but just what does that speak to you about Obi-Wan mm. and seeing that whole development and, and arc for his character? It was surprising, exactly like you said, you know, and I, I would give a lot of credit to the Clone Wars for taking such a big swing like that, yeah. right? To to say, here's one of our core characters who's known for obedience and faith and all those things and saying he almost gave it all up at some point. Um and I think I'm trying to remember when I first saw it. I mean, so my history with the Clone Wars is I was there um, midnight for the movie. I was confused why the theater was half empty. I'm like, isn't this a Star Wars movie, guys? <laughs> guys like, come on, where are you? Yeah, I think there was one cosplayer there who was also like, where, where is everybody? Uh, like, usually there's 20 of us and we the wrong pose date? for pictures. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I, I watched the show basically right from first airing. But I didn't really revisit it ever. You know, I've watched a few here and there now um, that my son is of the right age to want to watch it. Um, So I remember sitting there and seeing this this episode, um, which, you know, the introduction of Satine, I think, was a really fun way to play with Obi-Wan. And especially James Arnold Taylor's Obi-Wan is just a man um you know the the asajj kenobi shippers i totally understand like it's it's yep. thick it's fun it's just this totally new dynamic that i don't think well alec guinness certainly did not but i don't think even ewan really brought that to sure. the 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 character so i really love that side of him um and then this big revelation uh, about satine so the first time was was startling and yet I think I realized pretty quickly it doesn't challenge much about what we know to be who Kenobi is, right? Sure. Um, the fact that he was almost somebody completely different is something I think a lot of us can connect with, right? That yeah. you go through life and you make your choices and you decide what's important. And I think we all have those moments where we're like, well, what if I'd done this other thing? What if I had talked to that guy or girl at the bar what if i had taken that job or had tried to move or or all those steps and i think that that is uh really how james arnold taylor played it right that that there's this wistfulness and it's like i i would have like we could have had a life and and we we might have and what would that have been and i think you know one of the first things that always then came to mind for me is um, Obi-Wan's story is not a tragedy, but after Revenge of the Sith, he's going to spend, we think, we'll see, 19 years yep. <laughs> alone on Tatooine. And to imagine him sitting there thinking about Satine is is really poignant to me and really mm. moving to think that, you know, he had a life 
but devoted himself to a bigger cause and made sacrifice. And and for my my personal heroism uh, definitions, I think that's a part of it, right? Yeah. That you put something else above yourself and you take uh, the selfless path instead of the selfish. And I think Satine gave him um, he showed it, it helped us realize as viewers what he sacrificed in an important yeah. way. I think in some ways, uh, as as kind of huge of a moment as it was to hear him say that he would have given it all up for for her, you know that what would have been, what could have been, what also speaks, you know, just as loud of volumes is that he didn't, you know, yeah. that that he made the choice to, like you're saying, to put the cause above you know, his emotions of, of his maybe desires for something more that those were lesser or second place to him, you know, could, putting the cause above himself and, and serving something greater, which I think is is, is just as powerful and, and massive of, of an understanding as that kind of intimate moment as we got with with him and Satine. Um, and, you know, we and we see, you know, over seven seasons, him you know, fight out in this war for this cause, you know, getting involved, you know, really taking on this general Kenobi persona and, and, you know, really like with all the Jedi just in the thick of this fighting to, you know, for for the galaxy, for the Republic, you know, his allegiance is the Republic to democracy. <laughs> and so I guess it's still in the Clone Wars, you know, we, we talk a lot about how it was really the transition or if the Jedi were kind of imperfect before the war, it was really during and throughout the war that they begun their kind of spiral and their fall as an order, as, as an entity. And, and do you see that in, in Obi-Wan throughout the Clone Wars? Do you think that in a lot of ways he was able to stay true to what it meant for him to be a Jedi, you know, personally and also just as kind of as an entity? Or do you think we also saw really some some fall with the Order or if he was able to, to set himself apart? What do you think about that? Yeah, it's... I, I was just thinking as you were describing that, I think he is the character that we see that in the most like that's the character they use to tell us that story of uh you know using rough real world equivalents a faith-based organization becoming mm -hmm. a political organization right sure. um or a military organization perhaps more accurately that we see that they are morally on the right side but as they start to make little tiny sacrifices all the way through, then we end up at a place where they're no longer morally right, or they're they're corrupted to a point where they're not their former selves. If, the, if they're still right, perhaps, but they're not their, their former selves. Um, and I think why I would focus on Obi-Wan for that is Anakin is always on his own story. <laughs> He's, <Yeah>. you know, he, <laughs> Doing for his all own thing. The, exactly. And, and, you know, he never was as devout to the Jedi, and we always know... Um, that we're seeing him on his way to what we know happens to him. It's hard to discount that. Yeah. I was, when you were talking to, I was weaving my head and tying it in circles, trying to think through, okay, how do I think about this as I think about it as the move from episode two to episode three? But it's always that we never experienced it like that, right? Mm -hmm. That we always experienced it after episode three. Yeah. So that's, you know, there's that resonance to it um, always. 
And I would also just note the character design, right? That he gets this armor and we never see the armor in live action again so far. Maybe we'll get a little surprise on Disney Plus. Um, And so that to me shows that not to get too literary on it, but he's he's equipping a new identity. He's becoming Mm. a part of this system and it's marking him, right? It's military armor that is seemingly identical to the clones. He's becoming one of them. And yet he still has that little uh, patch or or stencil of the Jedi symbol trying to kind of say like, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm Jedi, but I'm, I'm clone. And it's like, well, if you are really a defender of peace and justice, um, do you need battle armor? I mean, armor is defensive, but it it seems like he's taking more of that role. Um, I don't know though. and, And maybe I'll throw it back to you with this question. Is Obi-Wan the character questioning it at all? I could see it both ways. But does do you think he senses this change um, and is trying to fight, push back against that tide? Or is he too swept up and is he just being um, set on his course towards those militaristic ends? Mm, that's it's a good question and and i feel like i'm crippling myself by having not seen uh seen the show in so long but i i i guess relatively recently had seen and i don't know if this ties into necessarily the the militaristic side of the jedi but the the arc where ahsoka ends up leaving the order and how Mm. obi-wan was part of the the council who kind of put her on on trial or as, as an order before she was you know grilled by by Tarkin or whatnot and, and how he was kind of caught up in the wave of the Jedi in in those moments as well and, and so you know I, I'm still un, unfamiliar with the kind of like the earlier seasons but I would be more inclined just off the top of my head to think that he, if he did realize and start to question things it might have been when it was too late Um, that I think, you know, when you're talking about him kind of donning this, this new personality persona with the armor, kind of the symbolism behind that, where I think his vision might've been just as clouded as, you know, as Yoda's, as Mace. And uh, I don't know. No, you've given me a lot to think about there. And it really is just, again, alongside the armor, we go from Padawan Kenobi to mm. Jedi Knight Kenobi, and now it's General Kenobi. And yeah. that'll be what lasts at least halfway through Revenge of the Sith. And I don't think, I think George knew that, right? Like to yeah. to show us, um, um, because there is a moment late in Attack of the Clones, I think it's Mace Windu gets called General. And I remember mm. in the theater when suddenly they land the, the gunship, they jump out and the clones troopers like, this way, General. And it's like, whoa, like that was fast. And that yeah. was a role the Jedi weren't looking for. Um, you know, again, speaking to teacher roles, I, I've seen so many times in my career and in my personal life, when you have the world's greatest teacher and then they get promoted to be the principal and mm. they're terrible because those are not actually the same skills. We yep. think they are, but they're not. And so I, it's kind of like that. We take this really good, the negotiator, right? And we take him from a, a good teacher, a good uh, guardian, and suddenly make him a general on the battlefield. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we certainly can't talk about all the arcs on Clone Wars, and I think we're both ill-equipped to do so. <laughs> um, but then, you know, the one that always stands out in my mind is the final one on Mandalore and yeah. the the absurd tragedy that occurs that is just so heartbreaking every time I watch it. And, and the yeah. fact that he has to not only um, that he would 
pull away from the order in order to go help Satine. That sure looks like a connection to me that we're not supposed yeah. to have those connections. Um, but then that it doesn't go his way. Um, and we see uh, him witness her death as yeah. um, is really tragic. So I think to me that just the moment where he reveals his relationship to Satine to the end, those are the bookends of how I remember the Clone Wars. And that means it's a period of, of loss and of uh, growing disappointment and suffering. Yeah. So I want to kind of briefly touch on one of the points that stood out to me, I guess now once we're in Revenge of the Sith, and there's a couple of moments, one with Mace Windu and uh, Yoda when I think they're in the gunship and Yoda's about to ship off to Kashyyyk, and he's kind of pleading the case to them about, you know, is he not the chosen one? Is Anakin mm. not the chosen one? And then when he tells Anakin after he, uh, you know, uh, gives, you know, <laughs> cuts off a few limbs, you know, he says, you know, you were the chosen one. And so we see mm. in the, kind of those two lines, I think for me, I I see him or and I, I am kind of ill-equipped to speak if, if there are also signs of that in the Clone Wars as well, maybe in the Mortis arc or not, of him kind of coming to the understanding, kind of the, the acceptance personally that he does believe that Anakin is the chosen one and how when he took Anakin on as an apprentice at the end of Phantom Menace, it was more like, okay, Qui-Gon believes that, so I'm going to fulfill this promise because this is what Qui-Gon believed. I might not necessarily believe in it myself, but it's part of the promise that I'm fulfilling to Qui-Gon is to, you know, if if my master chose to believe, I guess I will too. And then we see in the Revenge of the Sith, him kind of on personal terms with he is the chosen one, or is he not the chosen one? You know, we, we kind of have come to this understanding and so I guess, what do you make of that, seeing someone who is so starkly opposed to the idea of the Jedi mystics and prophecies and kind of in taking them, you know, literally or not, kind of just prophecies in general, he was always kind of at odds with that side of kind of interpreting the Force and the will of the Force. And then in The Revenge of the Sith, in those moments, we see that there's been a change and a shift. And mm. I think one of my guests in season two said that there were also signs in the Clone Wars, but kind of seeing that shift, that really a significant shift in Obi-Wan, it, it means a lot. Yeah, um, it, it is a really good question. It, it would make a good question to your your uh, patrons, I think, to ask them, like, when do you think Obi-Wan mm. started to believe Anakin was the chosen one? Um, and I, I don't know that I have a great answer for that one myself off the top of my head, but there has been a shift. Um, Obi-Wan comes, uh, I, and again, uh, he's a master now. We do still have General Kenobi, but we have Master Kenobi in the in the full sense of Jedi Master. Um, and so there's a burden that comes with that. And to, to the point of what you're saying is I think the prophecy side, if I get my Star Wars right, that would be tied to like the living force in a mm. lot of ways, right? To understand that the force is acting and shaping the destinies of these. And I think there is a sense in Obi-Wan immediately in Revenge of the Sith. So so we finally get them. Um, we said in Attack of the Clones, they weren't in step together. The beginning of Revenge of the Sith, they seem pretty in step together, right? Yeah. They move together. They they plan together. They're bickering, but in a playful way, right? And, and getting all that there. Um, and then that gets set akimbo again in the yeah. in the scene where Obi-Wan, you can tell Obi-Wan doesn't like what they're asking Anakin to do, right? Yeah. He's not comfortable with the request. He's also seemingly not comfortable with Palpatine's role in Anakin's life. And, and yet he can't quite figure that out. And so I wonder if that 
set of emotions is what causes the questioning that you you brought up right so then he's like is he not the chosen one it's and it's almost like and we're mm. asking him to do this spy garbage stuff and shouldn't he be doing something greater if, if he really is the chosen one um and and mace windu's response is also notable right like unless the a prophecy that could have been misread or yeah. maybe that's yoda but i think that was yoda yeah yeah so it wants us to doubt it as well and maybe to to think about you know obviously the prophecy side of master and apprentice lends itself into that yeah as well but I think you are right that by the end of Revenge of the Sith, he sees just how lost Anakin is and is hit with the tragedy of it. You know, when he says you were the chosen one, it really to me always sounds like you were meant to be the best of us. Mm. And I just had to cut you apart at, on the side of a lava <laughs> hill. Um, yeah. It, so I think he he does believe it at that moment um, or at least he could even be sad about thinking back to Qui-Gon even, right? Yeah. Like like the whole order believed in you. You were supposed to do this. And now I see that we were all misguided. And maybe yeah. to our question about the Clone Wars, maybe that's the moment he realizes the Jedi are all misguided. If, if they believed in this, if they believed in Anakin and didn't see all of this coming, they were, they were truly blind to it. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the suffering of, of Kenobi kind of continues, I think, and you had mentioned just then that it ties into what Qui-Gon had believed. And it really, I, I never thought about this, but kind of the anguish that we see in that moment when he's saying, you know, you were the chosen one, you were supposed to, you know, destroy the Sith, not join them. And how really in that moment, you have to wonder if, if you know, obviously everything, his his world has just shattered on him. Everything has just turned on its head. And you have to wonder if in that moment he's also kind of realizing that everything, that really Qui-Gon's death, everything he's done since Qui-Gon's death for Anakin has been all for naught because, mm. you know, he was supposed to be the best. This is what Qui-Gon believed. And really he says, you know, you were the chosen one. Right. Maybe Past implying times. that, you know, that he's not. He can't be. This This can't be what the you know the the fulfillment of what Qui-Gon had believed you know this this can't be it mm. and so really just in that in that vein it just makes that moment all the more powerful all the sadder where you know the the order is lost his apprentice is lost but then also everything that he promised to his master at the end of Phantom Menace is now just shattered as well it's mm. it's just so much and I would just rewind Revenge of the Sith a little bit. And when Anakin, or sorry, when Obi-Wan and Yoda are at the Jedi Temple, um, Anakin, or, why am I confusing them now? <laughs> Obi-Wan knows immediately what has happened there. And he's like, I got to go look at the security recordings. And Yoda tells him, you're not going to like what you see, but he has to look. And I think that's him reckoning with the consequences of that, the last 10, 15 years um, of his life has been spent working towards this ideal, believing in something. And yet he has to watch it himself to really come to grips with it. Sees not only the slicing and dicing of the cutest Padawans in the universe, but uh, Master Skywalker, what are we going to oh, do? No. Uh, but also sees him take a knee to Palpatine right in the right in the conveniently edited yep. hollow recording <laughs> right. uh, altogether. And it's at that moment, Obi-Wan knows that he and Yoda are going to make the Hail Mary pass. And he pleads 
send me to the Senate. Don't send me after Anakin. He doesn't yeah. think he can do it. Um, and, you know, he essentially puts the order, puts the galaxy in front of his own personal uh, beliefs um, and goes to try to stop Anakin and then is yeah. is wins, does it, um, but just maybe should have taken one more stroke, right, the, to, yeah. to really ensure it. So I think I think that is... You know, all of this is just making me recognize that he gets a rough ride in episode he three. He um, really does. It is Ewan's best performance. Every time it's election day, I have to post for the Republic, for democracy, and go vote. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, the way he just is giving it his all in those scenes and screaming his lines and then the, the yeah. duel. Um, you know, for every OT fan who dismisses the prequels entirely, you usually still hear them be like, but that that duel's pretty cool. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll still watch that from time to time. But um, it's just, it's a beautiful film. And, and I, I've been encouraged as the prequel generation has kind of taken over a lot of, uh, you know, the mainstream opinions, I would say, yeah. um, to see the love of Revenge of the Sith uh, grow and grow and grow. Because I do think it's, it's the finest of those three for me. So it's great. And so we move from Revenge of the Sith to rebels and and he doesn't appear much in rebels i think it's it's really i think when ezra saw kind of the the transmission that obi-wan had sent out to the jedi warning them to not return to the to the temple and then obviously in the arc that we or in the episode that we all remember so well uh twin sons mm. you know when i think of rebels and obi-wan in rebels it's twin sons and and what we get there and there's a couple of points in that episode that i i, I want to kind of throw your way and so on one hand, we get the kind of the, the climax to his rivalry with Maul. And there is this really fantastic point brought up by DeVore, one of the podcasts I listened to, A Large Review of the Force, where he points it out in the moment where they duel. Or I guess in the moments leading up to that kind of very brief but powerful duel uh, in front of the, the campfire. <laughs> in front of the campfire. That sounded so romantic. Oh, <laughs> duel in front of the yeah. campfire. Yes. Um, Coming soon from Harlequin. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> Where Obi-Wan doesn't react to, to duel. He doesn't activate his lightsaber or kind of take up the you know his defensive position or whatnot until Maul threatens luke or kind of the idea that oh there's someone here that you're protecting that's why and it's not until then that obi-wan reacts mm. and so i think as devoid pointed out in the show it's like in that moment obi-wan kind of contrasted to what we got in the phantom menace where he fought at where, where he was the first one to ignite his saber you know he was the one to charge maul you know really fighting on the uh, from the offensive point of view in this moment it's flipped where he's mm. reacting to maul he's fighting defensively to you know i think uh, tied into what rose said he, he fighting out to protect and save what he loves rather than fighting against someone or something that he hates but in that moment that shift in his motivation in kind of his his approach to this fight it's just totally flipped from what we got in the phantom menace and really speaks i think volumes to the person that he's become after order 66 and after all of his endeavors in this moment choosing to duel only because he's putting you know this this cause above himself it's not about a petty rivalry like you know how maul is kind of approaching this as you know it's not from revenge 
for Qui-Gon or whatnot. It's on the defensive to protect, to fight for something mm. uh, rather than against someone. And so what did you make of kind of that? I know it gets a lot of flack for being so quick, but I think there's a lot of power <laughs> in it, a lot of symbolism in it too. But what did you make about this kind of climax to this year-old rivalry with Maul? Yeah, and I I'll just start by saying again, such a surprise. Um, you know, I, I as as I'm sure has been clear, I'm a lesser fan of the animated. Um, it's just sure. it it's where I was in my life. I couldn't devote as much time and obsession to it. And particularly, I I enjoy Clone Wars more than Rebels, and um, Rebels is I respect it, but it's just not my favorite show. I never expected to see something like this, right? Mm-hmm. That we could just tune in one week and suddenly we're going to Tatooine with Darth Maul. It was shocking and wonderful and and amazing. Um, and I think, as I recall, it hit just before um, Celebration Orlando, um, and so it kind of the celebration that's getting us ready for Last Jedi. We're all kind of there reacting to this moment and this this big surprise, and it, it's such a, a wonderful surprise at that. Um, I think there's another question implied by your question. This is this is my pure teacher mode that that's activating. <laughs> um, but as you just framed Revenge of the Sith as him coming to believe that Anakin is the chosen one, I think there's been another shift, right? And and so yeah. this question of does Obi-Wan now truly believe Luke is the chosen one? Which I think Star Wars fans have fought a lot about this since this episode aired because Obi-Wan says Luke is the chosen one. Now, does that mean we should say he's the chosen one? Um, And I think, as I recall, Pablo Hidalgo said, don't confuse the truth with the views of a character or a character's perspective. And so that seems to imply it's still Anakin, but I do like that that points out Obi-Wan in this moment can't see that. Right. He's still stuck in this place where he's lost Anakin and Anakin is irredeemably gone. And to think about the journey those two characters just went on, you know, it's easy enough to say the inverse of the Phantom Menace duel is is here in this moment. And that's exactly right. And and to think about the I'm going to be bad at the math, probably 30 years that have gone by between those Something two like mo- <laughs> moments. I think um, it I guess it depends a little bit where where in Rebels falls, if how close we are to A New Hope. Um, but that's that's a lot. That's a lifetime. And I think Obi-Wan now approaches Maul with pity. Yeah. When he sees Maul, Maul is literally a broken man. But Obi-Wan has come to understand all that Darth Maul could have had, that he was ready to be Darth Vader, essentially, to, to run the Empire. And Obi-Wan stopped that didn't stop the whole plot, but stopped this one creature, this one man from experiencing that. Um, and then we add on to that Mandalore and then Mandalore a second time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, it, it is more Ahsoka that second time, obviously, but but that all of that is is has been taken from Maul. Um, when Maul shows up, it is extreme pity. And then I think you're right. He might not have killed Maul, he might not have pushed the confrontation had Maul not said, I want to, you must be protecting something. Exactly. I don't mean to repeat your point to you, but I think you're right that it's at that moment that he's finally kind of resigned to fighting. I now have to because I can't let something happen to the chosen one. Yeah. Which is, uh, and I just remember this line when Maul is saying, you know, look what you have become, a rat in the desert, and Mm -hmm. Obi-Wan kind of claps back with, you know, look what I have risen above, and which (laughs) it just gives me, it gives me chills, you know, 
thinking about that line and just it just shows where he is as a person and how he's looking at Maul, like you're saying, with this pity. Um, and, you know, I don't see how you can't pity Maul. It's, it's really, a, that's that's a tragedy, too. Um, but yeah. uh, I guess, you know, you, you had mentioned how he had this shift in personally choosing to believe that Luke was the chosen one. And, you know, I guess to bring that point to a close, to you, what does that say about Obi-Wan as a person with what he's been through, his motivations, that he decided to shift that belief and and kind of deny that it was Anakin. It couldn't have been Anakin. It has to be Luke now. And and choosing to believe that Luke is the chosen one rather than abandoning the prophecy altogether. Do you think there's any symbolism in choosing to that he has to put that pedestal somewhere? That maybe it's a place to put his hope in because mm. there's really that's all that he can do. What did you think about that? Where he could have really just abandoned the prophecy, where it's like, oh, it must have been just total BS then. You know, if yeah. it wasn't Anakin, you know, what is it? But then, no, he chooses to instead shift that belief onto Luke and, and what that might say about him and where he is. Yeah, it is, again, another moment where you have to recognize how many years have passed, right? Um, Again, I'm not the strongest, but we're at least probably talking 15 years or so that he's sat in the desert um, and meditated and subsisted um, as best he could, all in devotion to protecting this child. So I don't think you could say that he his shift in his belief happened at the end of revenge of the sith but he did make a clear choice with yoda with qui-gon kind of um and with bail to say the children we believe the children are our future uh and so we're going (laughs) to go into hiding but protect them and make sure they're ready for when the time comes um and i i think there's a lot of story we're going to experience that will fill in some of this of course um, you know, fresh in my mind is always the Kenobi novel, which is now legend. So good. <laughs> um, really wonderful. Yeah. Um, and, and I've always treasured that one. Um, and it could, at least at the moment, it could be canon. There's nothing in there that, that could. could be canon. <laughs> I always treasure those books. Plagueis is like that, too. I'm like, Plagueis Oof, is still yeah. pretty much canon. Pretty much. Um, <laughs> so, um, so I do think that there's, there's a lot there about the fact that he did spend this time communing with Qui-Gon. And so... That adds, I, 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 when you were asking the question, I was like, maybe that is what I want to say. And then I was like, it actually complicates it more than answers it. <laughs> so if you would imagine if Qui-Gon has become an all-knowing part of the cosmic force, then he would have the answer. Now, would he give mm. that answer to Obi-Wan is, is a separate question, perhaps, and maybe that's the loophole. <laughs> but um, to think about the fact that he has devoted his time to learning this techniques, to getting more in touch with the force, and in that process or alongside that process has now come to believe in Luke and in Anakin's children as the, the true chosen one or, mm. or the way forward in this. I think that's a ripe bit of storytelling, and again, we know that's when Kenobi's going to be, so we can hope that that will get a little bit yeah. uh, more to that. Um, but I do think, I, I take him at his word in Rebels, that it is, I believe in Luke Skywalker, and he will, you know, survive till the end believing in Luke um, yeah. and in that moment. Um, and I guess the only other thing I want to make sure I say about Rebels is we got to shout out it's Stephen Stanton who takes over yep. the role now. Yeah. As we kind of close up this arc, as we move from Rebels through A New Hope when Obi-Wan 
sacrifices himself for Luke for the cause. Again, putting the cause above himself. You know, it's very consistent through his story across the the saga. You know, I was just looking at a, a couple of the quotes where he's talking to Luke. You know, when he's they're still on Tatooine, and he's telling Luke. You know, Luke's talking about. Uh, you know, how his father, he, his uncle told him that, you know, he was a, a, I don't know, some kind of pilot. I don't know if it was like a, a spice freighter yes. uh, pilot or yep. or whatnot. And and old Ben comes back with him. He says that, um, you know, quote, a young Jedi named Darth Vader, who was a pupil of mine until he turned to evil, helped the Empire hunt down and destroy the Jedi Knights. He betrayed and murdered your father. And he goes on to say he was the best star pilot in the galaxy and a cunning warrior and he was a good friend. And, you know, reading that, I was thinking, you know, a lot of the times we, um, and, I, and maybe it is the answer right there, that he's saying this to Luke to protect him from the truth, that he knows he's not ready yet to understand that, to know mm -hmm. that. And I was thinking, is it purely out of protecting Luke from the truth, or is some semblance of that, is there some like a little bit there that he's also kind of convinced himself of that metaphor that, you know, Darth Vader betrayed and murdered Anakin, mm. um, you know, obviously not literally, but kind of metaphorically in a sense to help deal with the trauma of what's happened. Because like you've said, you know, he was sitting there in the desert for 10, 15 years, just meditating and kind of mulling over everything that happened and, and, and all that. And so, I don't know. What, what do you think about that? Because a lot of the times it's, you know, kind of cast away as just, oh, you know, Luke's not ready. So he's just putting this front. But do you think there's a little bit there that it's it's also a way to help himself cope with with what happened? I don't know. Yeah. And, and I, I want to say, obviously, we're just going to sidestep the fact that Lucas wrote that not knowing yet and, right. and all those pieces. <laughs> but to really take it at face value in universe for what it is, I think there is something to the fact that Obi-Wan has probably spent these decades really trying to come to terms with what happened and processing his trauma. I'm thinking of Force Ghost Qui-Gon as his therapist, right? And yeah, how did right. that make you feel? And uh, maybe their their relationship finally came together. Maybe they there. started communicating. Yes, exactly. That's all they had at that point. Um, and I do think that the version of events he gives him in A New Hope, I think the way, I mean, that moment is pure, beautiful Alec Guinness, and that's why you pay for Alec Guinness, right? right. That that you give him that moment, and the, the pathos in his voice when he was a, a talented pilot and a good friend, like, you just yeah. believe it so deeply. Like, this this man really misses Anakin, and, and yeah. I, he does. He, he purely does. Um, and I also think in terms of in-universe, he is reciting things, essentially how the Sith dealt with it, right? Because yeah. Anakin w took a knee and then was said, rise Darth Vader, Lord Vader. And I think he, by taking on a different name at that moment, yes, you're right, he didn't literally kill Anakin, but that is the moment where Anakin was no longer himself. And, yeah. you know, it's a silly kind of benchmark, but when you buy action figures, it's that moment where they decide whether it's an Anakin Skywalker toy or a Darth Vader toy. Right. And, <laughs> and you can buy a, a, a Darth Vader toy that looks like Hayden Christensen, but is, uh, you know, uh, called Darth Vader. And so I, I think that is for him there's there's real truth in that um the the spice freighter uh, a little bit more of a lie but anakin did pilot <laughs> the twilight 
which was a spice freighter at uh, the beginning yeah, of Clone yeah. Wars. So there was some grain of truth to it. Uh, but I think your question implied this idea that's popular on the internet that Obi-Wan just is a straight up liar for no good reason. Um, you know, our teachers give us the information we need when we're ready for it. And to yeah. say, you know, Obi-Wan is, is dealing with his truth, but he knows Luke can't hear that yet. And it it feels very much like Dumbledore, right? That mm. Dumbledore hides the full truth from Harry until the last moment when Harry needs that last piece yeah. of information and is ready and fully prepared for that. Um, and so Obi-Wan holds a few things back and, and will come as a ghost to, to finish off the education of Luke Skywalker. Yeah. That's uh, he, maybe as Dumbledore kind of <laughs> used Harry as a guinea pig in a way. I don't think <laughs> Kenobi didn't definitely didn't do that for Luke, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, we we also get that powerful moment where he confronts Vader again. Uh, you know, the the circle becomes complete, and he sacrifices himself. You know, for Luke. You know, we see that very powerful moment where he kind of gazes off to to where Luke is standing with Ko, you know, watching, you know, what's unfolding between uh, old Ben and Vader. And then he looks back at Vader and there's this, I guess I see it in my mind, like this just wry smile mm. where he knows that even, you know, he knows he can't beat Vader in a, in a duel, but he can still have that ultimate victory over there by laying down his life for you know, for them to escape, for this the chosen one in his in his belief to go on and, and, and save the galaxy. And we see that sacrifice. And, you know, as you know, Alec Guinness's performance was absolutely fantastic. And just and just seeing that moment, you know, after our conversation, just walking through his whole arc. And I know he appears in the next two movies as a force ghost, but really the you know, in this moment he he dies. Mm-hmm. Um and so kind of just wrapping his arc up there. What did that moment mean for, for you? What does it mean for you in, in your understanding of, of Kenobi uh, as a character and just seeing this really ultimate, uh, this <laughs> ultimate heroic act uh, in that moment? That moment, I think, is why I'm a Star Wars fan and why I've stayed a Star Wars fan, right? So more than any other moment in I'm going to say all of Star Wars, that moment has changed the most every generation, for lack of Mm. a better term. Every iteration of Star Wars, that moment hits a little differently every single time. So certainly, uh, again, um, I saw A New Hope after I saw uh, Empire and Jedi. So (laughs) the first time I saw it, I don't have a particularly strong memory of that. I think I was more confused that Obi-Wan was alive. It's like, oh, He's he's here. He's around. He's not just a, a ghost guy. Uh, he's not Casper. He's he's a guy. Right. guy. Uh, so I don't remember it resonating a lot. But as, as I imagine an audience in the 70s, um, I imagine, you know, you understand this is something we're familiar with in literature and mythology, that the mentor yeah. eventually falls away. And that's how we grow. Right. That's how we become who we're meant to be is, is losing the, the support of, of those that that took care of us. Um, and then. After the prequels, that's when that moment became truly wonderful to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And to fulfill the deep tease from the first five minutes of our conversation. (laughs) So the Topps Galaxy trading card, um, there was a six card set. And I've looked this up while uh, we've been talking. um, And those six cards took Joseph Campbell's hero cycle from Anakin's perspective. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time we could start to view what we thought at the time was the complete saga and understand the full story of Anakin 
Anakin Skywalker. And it pointed out that um, everything you just said is right. Obi-Wan gives the smile. We understand that he's winning, even though he's losing. If you strike me down, it'll become more powerful mm. than we've ever, than you can ever imagine. But it recast that moment from Anakin's perspective. Anakin gave up everything absolutely everything because he'd reached what he conceived to be the end of the Jedi. He learned all he could from them and said, I have a problem that's bigger than the Jedi. I'm becoming a Sith. I'm following the teachings of Palpatine and I will learn immortality. I will learn mm. how to save the the woman I love from dying. And he thinks then by the time we meet Vader in a new hope, he has every reason to believe he's the most powerful entity in the galaxy, second to the emperor, I guess, but that he's yeah. on the winning side and it's a matter of time until he becomes the master and, and moves forward. And in that moment, he hits Obi-Wan, he strikes him down and it should be totally triumphant. This is it. I finished the work. I'm done. All the Jedi are extinguished. But Obi-Wan disappears. And yeah. what does Vader do? He steps up and he's stepping on the cloak, which no way George intended that in 77. But it's like Vader is having a holy shit moment. Like yep. <laughs> this is there is something I didn't know. Obi-Wan knew more than me. Right. And we go back to the beginning of Attack of the Clones. Obi-Wan's holding me back. Now he knows there was something indeed that Obi-Wan held back. Mm. He had a piece of force knowledge and it sure seems tied to immortality that I was not allowed to have. And suddenly that sets Vader, I would argue, on his path towards redemption. Right. Yeah. That it's from that moment where he starts to think about, well, what have I lost? What have I not found? And that leads eventually to, I have I have a son. Uh, yeah. My son is Luke, this guy I keep meeting. Um, and then eventually I will sacrifice my own life to save my son because that's what matters. That's that's the way forward. And so yeah. I think that's a huge turning point that Anakin has to experience. And it's Obi-Wan's last lesson, right? The, the last thing he can teach his apprentice is you don't have it all yet. Wow. I never thought about it in that frame where really it was because of that that like you said that vader began whether you know whether he knew it or not on his on his path to redemption and how really that's the cornerstone in a lot of ways of of what happens next and uh like you said one last lesson for for his uh for his former apprentice of the circle was complete maybe not in the way that vader intended but those are some really Really brilliant thoughts to to bring this conversation, this discussion to a close. Uh, it's, it's really a flipping through my notes. You know, there's a lot of ground to cover. A lot of you know, his, his arc is one of I think the best in Star Wars, and I never really thought about him as kind of being one of the you know without Obi Wan, the saga as we know it would look drastically different. Mm. Uh, you know, for, for the worse, I think. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but I do want to get your thoughts. As we close up, you know, we have mentioned a, a few times this, uh, this upcoming Kenobi show, the yeah. Kenobi series. Um, and I, I can't let you go without first <laughs> picking your thoughts on uh, just briefly what, what your expectations are, what your hopes are for it. Uh, I know, you know, you as much as anyone are, are or maybe you would more than anyone else <laughs> are excited for, for what we're about to get on screen. But uh, as we close up, what are your uh, expectations and hopes for this upcoming Kenobi series? I am trying my best not to constantly be screaming from the top of my lungs. Like somewhere right now, no matter what you're doing, no matter what kind of day you're having, 
Ewan McGregor is off shooting Star Wars right <laughs> now, every day, uh, putting it together. I mean, um, you know, we obviously know he he started out at the beginning of May, I think, and and said they filmed a really special scene on Star Wars Day, which is really mm. exciting to think about. Yep. Um, so I'm over the moon excited. Um, and, and I do think as I've kind of aged i grow closer to um old ben than i yeah i'm not that old uh i, I realize this isn't a video <laughs> podcast I'm, I'm in my late 30s i guess i gave my my birth year before yeah. so we're good. <laughs> um so i am approaching more in my life i'm kind of in that stage of my life but it's really exciting to me to get to see you and return to this character and the fact that we went through three years of them every reporter under the sun asking him and he had to lie or, or evade the question that we now get to say yes and it's coming and it's going to be something special. Um, the fact that it was a movie and then a show and back and forth, I think a limited series, like they're saying, you know, I'm sure six to eight episodes that gives us a lot of hours with it. It's a, a lot yeah. to enjoy, but it's also in modern star Wars to me, it's becoming more important to just let things go too and let, let a thing be a thing and then move on and, and experience new parts of this galaxy. So um, I'm over the moon excited. And I think Ewan um, has really aged into it personality wise too. Like when you hear him in the media, this is kind of who he is now. And I keep laughing when um, like, people get scoops by his daughter's Instagram. He's got the beard and, and, but it's a reminder, like, you know, as much as we see him as, as the guy, like he's gone from, I believe a young single guy went through a lot of the prequels and now he's a dad and, and what he'll bring from that, that experience in his life to this, this role. Um, you know, if you want my wish list, Clone Wars flashbacks, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Satine live action, absolutely. Um, Anakin somehow being involved. I don't know. I, I'm trying to keep my mind open about him leaving Tatooine because I have no idea. Sure. I don't think anybody really does, even though everybody claims to. Um, will he leave Tatooine? Will he be in touch with Bail Organa? Will we hear Qui-Gon? There's a lot of possibility there, um, but my determination is just to let them Take us for the ride. Deborah Chow uh, really proved herself on Mandalorian for me. For sure. Um, those Her episodes, I think, were my top episodes in season one. Um, and uh, I've heard a few different actors just talk about how much they love her and working with her. So I think she'll make sure uh, this is in good hands. And every once in a while, there were rumors like, oh, they went back and they reworked the scripts and that let the clickbait site say it's going to be garbage. But yeah. that just means they care, right? They're going to exactly. work really hard um, and they're going to try their best to get this right. And I think there's the real opportunity to make this special. Hayden being back, that blows my mind still. That That's yep. possible. <laughs> if you had told me in 2005 that he would come back and everybody on in fandom would be excited about it that's that's great and i i really hope he gets a little piece of redemption because the man deserves it he does he does for the you know whatever product we'll get you know is i'm excited to potentially get you know liam neeson returning this qui-gon and it's exciting to have everyone back behind hayden again and i i do think that whatever product we get it's gonna be a phenomenal ride i i can't wait uh but greg thank you so much for taking the time to talk about Obi-Wan Kenobi. Before we wrap up, if the listeners wanted to find you on social media or on the interwebs, could you tell them where they could do so? Absolutely. Um, It, it really was a pleasure. When you originally asked, I, I responded, well, I'm usually talking about Obi-Wan Kenobi in my basement every night, so we might as well turn on a <laughs> microphone and have somebody else get to hear it instead of just my toys. Uh, so I'm on... Uh, <laughs> 
primarily I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Ion Cannon, E-Y-E-O-N-C-A-N-O-N. Um, I'm always up to talk Star Wars and I'm, I'm often sharing. I do a lot of uh, book content and I do a lot of collecting and, and stuff. So I'm, I'm usually there and also weighing in on whatever funny Twitter jokes are going around. Um, and I'm also on Instagram, which I use primarily to show off my Star Wars room um, slash whatever my kid and I are buying. Um, so yeah, please find me there. Uh, send me your thoughts on Kenobi. I'm always happy to hear from anybody who hears me uh, on a podcast. <laughs> Listeners, I will post uh, the links to Greg's social media in the episode description. Greg, again, thank you so much for talking about your main guy and talking <laughs> about Kenobi. This has been a really, really awesome conversation. I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to follow Outer Rim Reads on social media to stay connected to the show as we move closer to season three, you can follow us on Twitter at Outer Rim Read Pod and on Facebook and Instagram at Outer Rim Reads Pod. If you'd like to support the show for as little as $3 a month, you can do so at patreon.com slash Outer Rim Reads. Outer Rim Reads is created by Andrew Geha, it is hosted by Andrew Geha, it is edited by Connor Floyd, and it is produced by Andrew Geha as well as Simon Van Bagum. We will be back in two weeks with episode 40, the last in our inter-season break. So until then, sit back and enjoy- Oh, what? You're selling de- You're selling death sticks? No, sorry, I don't smoke. I'm kind of on the job too, but uh, uh, go ask the guy in the mullet over there, yeah. The one sipping the blue drink with the mullet. Maybe he's interested? I hear he's called... Kenobi.